I V M. Welcome to All Things Policy, a daily podcast by the Takshashila Institution. We are a bunch of policy nerds based in Bengaluru, and we like bringing fresh perspectives to Indian affairs and Indian perspectives to global affairs. So grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and join us for today's chat. Hello, and welcome to All Things Policy. As you may know, we talk an awful lot about China, and we focus a lot on the way that Chinese media and Chinese diplomats help shape the global perceptions of China, especially over the course of the last few months when China has received a lot of blame for the global pandemic. Now, today we are going to be diving into Chinese media in a little more detail. This is part of a broader series that we're doing about China, exploring China, understanding it. Um, you might want to listen to the episodes that we put out on Thursday and Friday if you're interested. Uh, but today, what we're going to be doing is focusing on Chinese media and how it really manages to play into domestic narrative control. I have with me today Suyash Desai and Manoj Kewalramani. So, Suyash and Manoj, as you both know, are our resident China watchers. Uh, both of them have excellent newsletters on China, which are based on uh, reporting about China and the rest of the world, and also reporting uh, within China about Chinese affairs. Both these guys have their fingers in uh, official Chinese state media as well as official media of the People's Liberation Army. Um, so, let's first try to understand the various ways in which Chinese media has tried to present the Galwan Valley incident. Suyash, the very first question I have for you is this: In India, India, we've had a fairly decent sense of the kind of casualties that we've suffered. Uh, there's been a lot of outrage on social media uh, about the tragic la- loss of life that has happened in the Galwan Valley. Now, what has been the equivalent of the Chinese side? Is there um, an equal amount of like, uh, is, there, is there a demand for a befitting reply to be given to India? Is there a blame game happening? Is there a clear sense of um, who's responsible and what really has happened in the Galwan Valley? Yes, uh, so I'll uh, divide the answer in uh, three parts. One is how uh, their English and uh, mainstream newspapers are looking into it. How is their army newspaper looking into it? And how are the unconventional uh, information sources looking into it? Uh, Unconventional also includes social media. So I'm sure Manoj will talk more about People's Daily. But Global Times, especially their English version, is one of the few... Uh, papers who are very vociferous about pinpointing at things that have happened on the border. Uh, They have constantly targeted India. Their editor has been very vocal on social media and they are saying that India India is the aggressor in this part. Uh, They have also highlighted all the approaches or all the statements done by Indian media. They have also highlighted all the statements because there are different perceptions or different opinions in Indian media about uh, how Indian Army has dealt with it. They have also used that on social media, including Twitter and Vepo, to forward, uh, to establish a narrative that India is aggressor in the ongoing conflict. So when the Indian Prime Minister, now that he's gone and said that China has not <laughs> crossed into Indian territory at all, um, how is the Global Times spin, spun this? Are they basically saying that um, the Indian Prime Minister himself has basically admitted that India was the aggressor? Is that is that the spin? Yes. So, so uh, since uh, Prime Minister last Friday said uh, on his televised on his televised address that uh, we have no no Indian territory has been attacked and uh, no Indian territory has been taken, this implies that. 
Indians have entered on the other side of the LAC. And that is proving the narrative with which the Global Times has been trying to build through their English and Chinese uh, editions that India is the aggressor in this case. How ironic, while the rest of the world is showing the satellite images that prove that China has crossed the line of actual control, India is playing into Chinese narratives that it was the aggressor. Uh, sad. But sorry, uh, let's just go back to what you were saying earlier about uh, the narrative building that Global Times were doing. Right? You said that, yes, there's been an attempt to prove that uh, India is the aggressor, but this is the Global Times. How are other Chinese news outlets? Yes, yes. so Global Times, if you talk to... Uh, uh, people on both this on people across the world about global times they don't have good opinions on they don't have good opinions on global times they are generally considered as a tabloid who can publish whatever it wants uh, but in case of people's daily and the pla daily there is very little said on what has happened also their first pages the first pages of first page of newspaper has not been dominant with sino indian news i'll give you an i'll give you a few examples uh, you pick out all the Indian newspapers in last one month. First, he- first headline, second headline, or third headline has been uh, related to Sino-Indian ongoing Sino-Indian dispute. In hmm. case of PLA Daily, even after the uh, face-off or skirmish that happened on the night of June fifteenth, this next page, the PLA Daily didn't give it the coverage that day uh, that would have been expected. The news came on the fourth page, which only said that something has happened. Obviously, there were no figures given out, but this is how China operates because in 1962, even in 1962 uh, war with India, no figures were gave out. The figures were only published in 1994 in their internal circulations. As Professor Taylor Frevel has pointed out uh, in his recent writings, in none of the conflicts where China has been involved, the death figures or the uh, figures of the number of uh, PLA soldiers died had had not been uh, given out. So, and also there is, if you if you believe the fact that uh, they're trying to build a narrative for controlling domestically, controlling their uh, what is happening domestically, it is not the case because none of their major newspapers are talking about it. However. The third part, the unconventional party, which includes social media, after the incident happened on June 15, there were a lot of reports on social media by Chinese citizens, netizens to be precise. They were questioning what has happened and asking government to address how many PLA figures have died, how many PLA people have died. Uh, Lately, there has been some news due to the Indian coverage that or there has been some acceptance because India is covering uh, that there have been casualties on both the sides. Lately, there has been acceptance by few PA, few newspapers in China that there is there is some casualty on the side of PLA. But again, numbers have not been given out. But yes, on uh, so social media, uh, people are uh, citizens are asking the government, or at least they are trying to build a narrative that uh, something has happened on Indo- Sino-Indian border, and. It is good if government gives a, gives detail about what has happened. So, Suresh, what you're basically saying is that it, it seems that Chinese state-owned media outlets have a sense that a loss of Chinese lives might be unpopular on Chinese social media and, and thus tries to keep it under wraps. But Chinese netizens have, have nevertheless been kind of discontented with the fact that the government is kind of spinning this narrative, right? Let's try to zoom out a little bit and try to 
contextualizes within the broader kind of context of how uh, Chinese state media interacts with its more kind of free-flowing social media environment. Now, we, we know, for example, that in a lot of countries, Turkey, for example, and of course, some other countries close to home, which I'm not sure I should name, um, ruling parties have very, very dedicated followings on social media. Um, a lot of like professionals who are paid uh, to basically influence social media discourse in certain ways. Um, now, does China have something equivalent? Um, how exactly does um, the narrative control of the CPC work? In China, this is for both of you. The Communist Party is a narrative control within. Uh, we uh, in our report have pointed it out. Anir, the report which Manoj, you, I, and Shibani have written, we have pointed it out that uh, in the Communist Party there are various departments which are responsible for media, as in building a narrative or publishing, uh, creating a narrative. This happens through uh, their newspaper, their major newspapers, and also there are various Twitter handles, as I'm sure are in other countries, responsible for building a narrative around whatever is conducive to the party. So, for instance, in this case, major information regarding Sino-Indian war, that uh, Sino-Indian dispute that had happened on 15 July, didn't come out till the time Indian newspapers covered it. And then, I think this is my understanding of it, because a lot of coverage was given uh, to Indian newspapers, the US statements came out and that's why they had to concede somewhere that there has, at least the Global Times editor conceded somewhere that there are, there are some uh, casualties. But otherwise, if the casualty figures would have been given out, then there would have been questions on, uh, on the leadership and the PLA itself that why such a thing happened and which would have created the narrative that is the PLA combat ready yet. So that's why... Within the party itself, there are certain organizations and mechanisms which are smooth running machines, which are like smooth running machines to create a narrative. And all the major newspapers work very closely with them. Um, yeah, uh, let me just sort of add to that. I mean, there are some parts that I agree with and there are some parts that, that I don't agree with. Uh, so let me just sort of first zoom out a little bit and talk about what's happened between India and China and how the Chinese have covered it. So uh, largely their media has followed official line uh, and largely the standoff uh, where it started from May um, wasn't covered uh, because uh, again it was not something it's not something that usually they do um, the aberration was Doklam um, and we'll talk about that but uh, they usually don't tend to cover things uh, as they are developing in such a way because unless the foreign ministry or the government or the party central leadership has a line on it they don't tend to do this why the coverage took place uh, after the June 15th clashes? Look, as the moment the Indian government acknowledged the clashes, I mean, if you remember June 16th, uh, late in the morning, uh, you had uh, Indian journalists on Twitter saying, bad, really terrible news coming from Galwan. And, you know, terrible news, terrible news was on every senior journalist handle uh, until there was an actual confirmation from the Indian army as to what has happened. Immediately, you saw some Chinese... Uh, Twitter handles, uh, including the editor of Global Times, Hu Shijin, tweeting about the incident. And there was a mention of casualties. So that was the sort of start of the Chinese media's coverage. Uh, fairly quickly, the Chinese foreign ministry and government sort of had a line and they started putting out that line, responding to official statements from India. When I say responding, I mean not necessarily directly in response to that, but basically because India has started sharing content, even they started sharing material, putting out their narrative. And subsequently, uh, what you saw was uh, uh, 
uh, official media. Because once the foreign ministry says something, you will see that rep rep repeated in Xinhua. You won't see Xinhua reporting it without the foreign ministry having a line um, or the MOD having a line. So far in the entire time, there have been only twice, there's only two occasions that this, uh, the entire standoff has been covered in the People's Daily. And both of those were official statements. Essentially, one was about the conversation between the Indian foreign minister and the Chinese foreign minister. And the other was uh, very recently the Chinese Ministry of Defense's first statement on the entire standoff. So think of it like this. This has been going on for a month and a half. And the first statement has come last week. Oh, sorry, earlier this week, actually. So it just tells you a little bit about uh, how the process works. On such issues, things are fairly tightly controlled. Now, as far as Global Times goes, it is a propaganda arm, but it's not necessarily, uh, the directives are not necessarily as clear. Um, there is much more looseness, much more freedom. There is a competition within Chinese media for eyeballs. Global Times particularly does content to seek eyeballs internationally. Because that then becomes a metric for demonstrating your success back home. So a lot of what, you know, we see in India, a lot of furor on Indian social media and within Indian media about Global Times saying X Global Times is, uh, you know, a graphic which shows a panda a certain way and the elephant a certain way. All of that is damaging broadly to Chinese soft power, but is an over-interpretation from people sitting outside about how the government and the leadership is thinking. Um, does it suggest a narrative that exists within society, media, intelligence? Yeah, perhaps, yes. But it's not necessarily how the government is actually or the Chinese leadership is actually approaching it. Does it reflect stands of thought in the party? Yes. So I think that's the one distinction about Global Times that I would like to make. I think it gets far more importance than it deserves. If you look at otherwise the coverage in China, just on Weibo and WeChat, um, there was some coverage, there was some talk, but it wasn't uh, before sort of state media and party media, official media really got into it. And a lot of it is driven. And that's why that tells you a little bit about how Global Times also operates, right? It sort of picks up trends uh, and sort of creates trends because that gives you a sense of market significance. And on social media, you saw the India-China conflict being discussed on Weibo. Um, in fact, uh, over the last, uh, particularly after the Galwan Wali uh, clashes, um, I was just checking... Uh, that as of now, uh, the hashtag China-India border conflict on Weibo has about 2.63 billion reads. So it tells you that there is lots of content out there. Some of this content is uh, drawing from what the Indian media is covering. Some of this content draws from official statements from India and China. Some of this content actually picks up very old imagery, uh, fake news, uh, videos which are, can be very, very old. I mean, I, I don't know if you recall, but in 2017, there was a video of an Indian uh, BSF Jawan uh, complaining uh, with snow-capped mountains behind him, can, complaining about the lack of proper food and facilities. And that video you can find today on video uh, today on Weibo with people posting saying, look, this is how well-prepared the Indian army is, with no reference to the fact that it is a 2017 video and it was about something completely different that Jawan right. was deployed on the uh, on the western frontier with Pakistan. So you will see some of that sort of going on on Weibo and there is a conversation. And what you've seen is that there was a brief period where this was censored, but it's not subsequently been censored. The state and party media have allowed to shape this narrative through influencers, through their media, 
uh, and you know in, in that manner largely um, so that's how they've operated um, you had asked about you know whether you have uh, paid uh, people so this is sort of you know uh, trolls and paid people i mean i i would encourage people to just go and google the term uh, umao or 50 cent uh, army or 50 cent party and what you will see is that there is an entire breed of uh, you know uh, people who apparently get paid per post and these are your sort of this is your troll army um and it's quite a commonly known thing in china uh, that you see this which sort of peddles the government narrative and it happens on a number of issues not just on foreign policy issues but say also in terms of covid uh, we've seen this happening in the early days when there was lots of pressure on the government so it's something that happens uh, and the chinese have sort of used all these different tools along with of course uh, what suyesh has spoken about on twitter with uh, you know with sort of wolf uh, warrior diplomats you saw that just a couple of months ago march end i think march and april you saw the chinese embassy in delhi its spokesperson get on twitter and uh, she does regular twitter threads although they've been fairly silent on this um the last bit of uh, propaganda from china or the chinese position that we've seen being placed in public is the interview by the chinese ambassador uh, to india sun weidong to the press trust of india it's really not an interview it's a it's a statement uh structured like uh, structured as answers to questions uh and none of those questions are probing so it's basically a placement of chinese viewpoints without any questions and that's how essentially how this entire narrative functions chinese have not spoken about casualties uh, i disagree with suyesh slightly on that because i think that the it's not really material for them to speak about casualties because unlike india where the pressure comes from uh, the media and the people given the nature of the indian system um whatever the pressure is will come from the media and the people in china it's not necessarily the case in china the pressure political pressure comes from party elites and party elites would know whether there were five deaths 10 deaths or 50 deaths um and the pressure on xi jinping would therefore be political pressure would be from that end my thought is that if they actually make the numbers public it is an indication of a willingness to escalate um and the fact that they are not making it public is partly culture reporting culture which suyash mentioned but is also to me a decision being taken uh to hold that off and if they if and when they do um that would be a demonstration of a willingness to escalate tensions with india so um thank you for that maras that was really insightful and i think there's uh, quite a lot to unpack here um the the first thing that that really uh, struck me was was the similarity if you will in the way that um authoritarian regimes seem to use social media there seems to be a playbook uh, that's replicated by russia by turkey by china and of course by certain elements in indian social media as well which is this extensive use of these paid armies basically of people who will um enforce a certain kind of narrative troll those who disagree with that narrative um using influencers but also what was very interesting to me was the kind of distinction you made uh, between the audiences for which a uh, various aspects of the chinese media are intended uh shinhua basically for amplifying uh, domestic narratives global times for uh, more kinds of trend creation also a more kind of a uh, foreign facing aspect of chinese media if 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 i read that correctly 
And in that sense, it really reminds me of uh, Russia today, you know, RT, which also does something very similar in the sense that it has very provocative reporting. Um, it, it kind of wades into uh, global issues, tries to create trends. And it's also interesting to see how different aspects of Chinese media seem to be responding to different kinds of incentives, right? Uh, the very fact that Global Times is doing all this, uh, sometimes deliberately going and provoking international audiences so as to report higher engagement metrics uh, is, I think, a very, very interesting point. And of course, the, the fact that the environment of Chinese media and social media is so totally different. Whereas in Indian social media can conceivably influence political decisions. In China, it seems like it's more or less noise to the party state. What happens in social media only matters insofar as it doesn't make the government look too bad. Um, but the real pressure that comes, that influences the way the regime acts, comes only from the party elite. And the party elite is not necessarily influenced by what happens on social media. So it's kind of interesting to think that even though there are certain similarities in the way that both Chinese and uh, Indian regimes are operating on social media, um, the reasons why they do that is totally different. Indian regimes are doing that to kind of reduce the political pressure on themselves, whereas Chinese elites are coming at it from a perspective that, you know, we just don't want there to be too much noise while we take all the big decisions. Now, please tell me if I've um, if I've drastically misinterpreted any of this. No, I think you've got it largely on point, but I just want to sort of make this one distinction. So in this particular case, on issues of foreign policy and strategic affairs, I don't necessarily think social media has that sort of a significant role. Um, it does have a role, but not to the point where it will dictate policy. But on say, when, why is social media important from a Chinese leadership perspective is two points. One is that it gives you a metric of uh, pressure and discontent within society. And it gives you that early warning system uh, on which you can act to alleviate that pressure and discontent before it mounts into something physical on the streets and that actually threatens the regime um, or it sort of crosses boundaries of provinces and cities and then becomes something larger. So that's one thing. It's about pressure. The other thing is also about for the central leadership, it's again a metric to assess what's happening at local levels because the central leadership may not be aware of what's happening locally in different parts of the country um, because the local leadership might ha has a vested interest in misreporting, positive reporting. So it gives mm. you a metric to sort of keep a check on people also in terms of people on power also. It gives you an opportunity to create more legitimacy by actually addressing some of the problems. And it also helps you sort of and as an early warning system to clamp down on discontent. So in all those senses, social media is useful. And therefore, in that sense, it acts as a source of pressure and opportunity for the government. But on things like what's happened in Galwan and foreign policy issues, um, it can be a source of pressure, but not in terms, it won't shape policy. It will give you a sense of, it is a tool mostly uh, that people in power can use to shape discourse because you can stir up nationalism far more easily. When it comes to domestic issues, it can be a source of pressure. That's the only distinction that I would draw. That's fascinating. Suyash, you had something? Yes. Uh, Manoj, uh, the earlier point which you made about uh, the this the incident that has happened and uh, that figure counts that has not been given out. I think uh, it's more people in, uh, like Indians, uh, the Chinese soldiers uh, and their families the families are also slowly and steadily asking questions regarding why uh, our, in case of India, as the Indian, if there are martyrs, it's been celebrated. And the approach of Chinese government or the Chinese uh, Communist Party of China is very different towards their martyrs. So 
slowly and steadily even the questions are been raised i agree with you that it is not manifested or it is not uh, it does not magnify into the scale in which it happens on india but slowly and steadily there are questions being raised as in why our matters are not being uh, given the similar status as other countries point number 1 point number 2 i think the uh, pl that there is something how pla delhi is making most out of it so the pla delhi there is a different type of narrative that has been set by pla delhi it's more of a military narrative where occasionally there are reports coming out and these are aiming at psychological warfare and deterrence so for example in the middle of a, in the middle of this crisis a report came out that tibet is establishing five new militias there are number of practice drills happening at tibet using certain new weaponry or a certain new force element or force structure has been created in tibet and all of this is facing towards india and from pla delhi if there is one single cutout in pla delhi it has been picked up by global times and magnified it into huge videos or and uh, circulated on social media in twitter uh, india where indians are indians can see it so this is how a part of psychological warfare is played through pla delhi this is a different type of narrative that is set by pla delhi yeah i i agree with what suresh is saying there that yes this is one i mean part of this is also sort of psyops where you're trying to sort of and some of the psyops are really silly i don't even see how why they would be considered as psyops but yeah i mean that's an attempt uh, to sort of create this impression you know like the right time you post a picture and you post a video of a drill being conducted somewhere which is in high altitude terrain and all of that and you try and sort of posture on the point of uh, the deaths uh, of chinese soldiers look i mean the, the, my point is that they tend to use this very strategically uh, i have not seen any significant pressure built up on chinese social media or even in say uh, you know new neo maoist uh, websites and platforms or on places like ifang also uh, where they're talking about the need for Uh, greater transparency and disclosure uh, there are some people who have said something so for example uh, fudan university's linmin linminwang had a piece recently where he basically said in due course of time perhaps the chinese leadership can also consider talking about what the casualties were so that, i mean that's uh, so that may be one sort of way because anyway these things will be very politely said rather than demanded um, but my point is this the fact that the government controls this narrative it will not choose to release the data because it feels a pressure from either the families of the soldiers or public it will choose to release it if and when it does because it sees strategic logic and it wants to signal its willingness to escalate um, so i'm not saying they might not release it they might Um, but if it does that would be the reading for it rather than a groundswell of public emotion that you must do this the sophistication of of, of this whole operation is, is is very interesting to me right whereas in india uh, it is quite possible for public opinion to lead or direct policy changes in certain ways um in china it's it's also within the realm of possibility but um it's it's much more uh, how do i put this much more intelligent much more nuanced in the way that the party state interacts with social media so as you're saying manoj it does seem to me that though there can be undercurrents or 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 um, if you if you think of chinese social media as a river it broadly moves in the way that the party state intends it to while there might be eddies while there might be whirlpools these usually kind of seem to give the party state um, a means to kind of 
correct the course of the river in such a way that these eddies like kind of return back to the normal flow right whereas in indian social media if you, again if you think of it as a river um that whirlpool can actually totally kind of redirect the the way that policy moves or in other ways like if you if you consider the fact that uh, the ruling party has a considerable amount of narrative control a considerable amount of influence in the media environment sometimes flows into channels uh, that are predecided by the government and sometimes overflows as i think we're seeing with the galwan incident now in the beginning of this conversation uh, we alluded to the fact that uh, the indian prime minister claimed that the chinese hadn't entered indian territory but this hasn't necessarily like slowed down the amount of outrage that we're seeing about the loss of indian lives i think that times now actually had a survey yesterday uh, which said that nearly 60% of indians think that the government has not yet given a befitting reply to the chinese um, so in india an escalation might actually be caused by or or at least it is within the realm of possibility that in india an escalation might happen because of opinions on social media whereas in china that is far less likely if there's an escalation it'll happen because the party state decides that it should yeah and i mean i mean even in india i think uh, the decision would be social media and other pre- media pressure would create political circumstances in which the government is forced to take certain kinds of decisions i think escalation might be tricky but i mean one class of I mean, conflict escalation might be is a far more complex thing but like for example you know things like uh, the sort of social media discourse and the anger has perhaps contributed to uh, our approach uh, in terms of say chinese products chinese goods or say you know things like uh, when in delhi hotels and folks say we will not accept any chinese nationals I think that is again. That's not government policy, but that's what happens when you have a narrative within a society uh, which reacts a certain way, and then you have a response, uh, you know, through different bodies, which may be official, semi-official, and that kind. So it might not be government sanction, but it sort of leads to actions of such kind, which then build pressure on government because governments are popularly elected. Um, in China, that's not the case. So, like you're right. I mean, the decision would be far, taken by a far more sort of cloistered group of people. uh yes i agree with mon manoj is saying but this is generally uh, this is a norm in china but there are few exceptions and the recent exception if i am correct was the death of dr li where the part where the uh, response to the death and the mishandling of the crisis in the initial stage led ccp to uh, take certain actions to address the anger so there are also some exceptions though there are ratio would be 98 to 2% but there are also some exceptions i think i think you are comparing apples and oranges uh, i agree i agree i agree the comparison, the comparison doesn't stand right because lee wenliang's death uh, i mean he was in uh, he was a public figure already in early january once the uh, once his detention happened and subsequently and he was uh, active on social media he had the following subsequently uh, he it was publicly announced that the fellow was in the hospital and if you actually go back to leave the night of leave and liang's death what you will see is that the initial report that he has passed was then subsequently retracted uh, and uh, you know uh, he was so called kept alive for a some time till it was decided what could be done um and then subsequently in the middle of the night or about at 2:30 or something around that time in the night it was announced that he is uh, died uh, and if you saw how state media uh, pivoted thereafter you will see how they made sure that they had a sense of what they had to do thereafter 
you know, the fact that Lee Wen Liang in March was in March, April was in declared a martyr and so on. So I think the process was very different. It was a strategic choice to do it the way they would do it. Uh, they could not control his death, of course, but it was a choice of how do you leverage this. That's that's the point that I'm making. That if you make it public right now, also as to what happened with regard to the PLS casualties, it will be a strategic choice. It will not be a response to public pressure. And the choice would be to shape the narrative a certain way. And my reading of it is the narrative would be shaped towards a willingness to escalate. Uh, and that's why I would say that when we in India are sort of clamoring for it, I think we should be very careful uh, because, uh, I mean, it serves, uh, you know, hawks here. But, uh, you know, if we actually see the Chinese release this data, it is they're sending us a message. Uh, it's not just to placate public at home. It's a message to India. Um, and the message, in my view, would be that we are willing to escalate. I think a great way to kind of break this down, understand the system a little better is to do what we promised to a few minutes ago, Manoj, and actually talk about the 2017 Doklam crisis. Uh, because I think a lot of the elements that we're discussing uh, in terms of um, how the state uh, has a considerable amount of narrative control, how the states, the state's decision uh, often plays out in media and in social media uh, can be seen very clearly. So um, how about you break it down for us? So uh, when the Doklam incident happened in 2017, of course, Doklam was, uh, you know, territory between Bhutan and China. Uh, and India is party to that dispute through multiple different means for which I would sort of recommend people go and read the paper that Anirudh and General Menon did. Uh, and we'll try and link it with this, hopefully. Um, but the sort of, I sort of did a long piece subsequently and looked at how the Chinese media covered Doklam. What was the official, what were official statements? How was media covering Doklam? And there's a substantial difference to what we are seeing today. You had uh, not just very daily, you had the uh, sort of Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Ministry of Defense on a sort of, not a daily basis, but literally, but more or less, fairly regularly, you had both of them commenting. Uh, they constructed the narrative early on very clearly that, look, uh, you know, this is India had trespassed. This was illegal entry. India was, quote unquote, provoking troubles uh, and it was violating international obligations. Uh, and, you know, then the Chinese will defend their sovereignty and so on and so forth. Um, and then they sort of went back to sort of historical records, uh, jurisprudential evidence, uh, and all of that, and also including citing the ground situation. They painted India as a third party interfering in Bhutan's affairs. At certain points, they put out detailed documents of, you know, what is our position on all of this. There was a paper actually that they published, that the Ministry of Foreign Affairs published saying, this is our position, this is why India is wrong and India should be going back. Um, subsequently, what they did was that they escalated this into more from the sort of uh, official realm of, uh, you know, historical arguments to things like, uh, you know, horrible, horrible commentary on Global Times, but not just Global Times, but also Xinhua. Uh, there was a piece that Xinhua ran about, uh, you know, the seven sins of India, uh, of the Indian Army in Doklam. It was uh, the piece ran on August 9th, 2017, if I'm correct. Uh, and uh, it just outlined seven ways in which India is wrong in its actions. Uh, and subsequently, uh, that piece was taken and converted into a video by a product called Xinhua Spark, uh, which is sort of this taking commentary and trying to convert it into hip, 
videos which can attract a younger audience sort of more conversational stuff uh, and that sort of mimicked uh, sort of had this parody of an indian man uh, being silly and foolish and being unable to understand what the chinese are saying because the chinese are saying is what the chinese are saying is just so clear and straightforward yet india seems to be uh, obtuse about it uh, because you know it's so foolish that was an interpretation of the video terribly racist horribly done Un, uh, very un-Shinhua like. Shinhua is very stuffy, official. And in contrast, New Delhi was silent. The media was silent. Uh, the government was silent. There were just a couple of official statements, very brief, saying that we want to sort of, you know, take this uh, officially and we'll sort of manage it and, you know, things like that. Um, to me, uh, there were different strands of what came out from the Chinese media, just the nature of the coverage, the sort of vitriolic nature of the coverage, which is not the case today. Today is far more restrained. Uh, and that, of course, is a choice being made. It also tells you a little bit about uh, the incentives for nationalism, stroking nationalism within Chinese media and perhaps how those incentives have changed as Xi Jinping's commanded greater control and uh, been able to exert more influence on in media. Um, he's been able to control the narrative much more. The last thing is to look at, uh, and this was the case in 2017 and it is the case today also, where one of the underlying themes uh, of sort of anxieties that comes out in Chinese media coverage is with regard to India's uh, partnership with the US. Um, and that is something that you still see. Uh, even today, you will see reports about, you know, how the US is fooling India into sort of some degree of complacence and, you know, the US won't come to India's aid and so on and so forth. It just tells you a little bit about the anxieties that exist within that system. But that was how Doklam was covered. It was very vitriolic, very angry, very regular, um, and some really strange sort of uh, bits of coverage. Compare that to what's happened right now, what we've already discussed. Um, the coverage has been very sparse. Uh, you've allowed some conversation on social media, a significant conversation on social media, but nothing. But you've directed that to your, your ends. Um, and internationally, apart from Global Times, which is, I, I, my sense is Global Times has been partly conducting some degree of psyops, but also partly engaging in what is its favorite activity, which is trolling people on Twitter to try and get <laughs> engagement metrics. Um, wow, that reminds me of a certain other uh, Indian news organization with Times in its name. Yeah. So I think it's partly that, uh, but uh, it also tells you a little bit about how the leadership there has wanted to keep the narrative under check uh, compared to. So anytime you see the official organs escalating, whether it's Xinhua, whether it's People's Daily, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, CGTN. CGTN's had a fair amount of discussion or CCTV domestically. Um, you know, CGTN's had some discussion on this, but CCTV domestically hasn't really covered it. So I think anytime you see that change is where you know that the leadership is ramping up pressure uh, sort of signaling externally at the moment they've kept things fairly under control compared to 2017 okay thank you so much manoj and suyash so let me just try to uh, briefly summarize all the stuff we've talked about uh, before we wrap up our conversation for today. Um, what I've really learned from this whole conversation is that there is a great multiplicity of actors on Chinese social media, uh, all of whom are responding to different incentives. Um, it was very interesting to me to see how uh, social media acts as basically a leading indicator of various trends in uh, Chinese society and how uh, the, the Communist Party is able to kind of respond to and also shape those. It it is 
most interesting to see the contrast, especially between the way that Doklam was handled, which seemed like a almost like a madcap off the rails kind of uh, aggressive posturing against India. Whereas how this is being uh, kind of managed, it's very obvious that yes, there does seem to be a much firmer hand uh, on the narrative. It's it's being played out uh, very strategically. Um, and also the similarities between the kind of authoritarian underpinnings of Chinese social media, the way that narrative control on Chinese social media works versus the way it works in other countries, uh, including Russia, Turkey, and of course, India. So thank you guys so much. Uh, are there any final thoughts you'd like to say for our audience before we wrap up this episode? Yes. On on general, on this dispute, I think something that we need to watch out for is what is happening in Pangong. Because uh, if the reports are to be believed uh, or not believed, things are at least escalating or de-escalating on uh, other parts. But Pangong is something that we need to watch out for because there are more uh, semi-permanent structures there and uh, it is going to be a long haul at Pangong. Yeah, I sort of agree with that. I think uh, the story is not yet over and uh, you know, there's there's lots more to play out and I think uh, it'll be good to just keep watching uh, for folks who want to sort of look at Chinese narratives uh, keep tracking official media but also keep tracking social media and other platforms uh, microblogs and things like that beyond Weibo also uh, WeChat is a platform. Just try and track some of those and you'll, it'll give you a broader sense of how people and state is thinking about things. And also you can, if not that, you can also track our newsletters. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, you'll find links to Manoj's analysis of the 2017 uh, Dokla media coverage and of course links to subscribe to both the PLA Insight and Ion China in the description for this podcast. Um, and uh, on that note, thank you guys so much for joining me and thank you for listening to All Things Policy. If you liked our show, don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the IVM network. You can tune into them on the IVM Podcast app, ivmpodcast.com, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also follow IVM on social media. The handle is at IVM Podcasts on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And hey, if you'd like to dive into Takshashila's research on technology, strategy, and economic affairs, check us out at our Twitter handle at takshashilainst or our website takshashila.org.in.